Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, a musical interlude with Rebecca Hallweg. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you very much. What a very buzzing place this is, and I'm very happy to be here. You're probably not expecting to hear any songs, but I'm a singer who um, likes words, and I quite often do things with John Hegley, the poet, and uh, other poets over at the Betsy Trotwood and elsewhere. So um, I've got a slightly boomy kind of sound happening on the microphone. Does it sound like that to you, or is it just me? So it's right, it's fine. Okay, I'm going to kick off. I think I'm going to um, sing you a song about being a June baby. I've done three albums. This is the title of my first album. And uh, if you are a June baby, this is for you as well. You were a June baby. I was a June baby too. You are a strong lady. And they say I am a strong lady too. If they only knew. You are a homemaker. I am a homemaker too. We've really been heartbreakers. We've had our hearts broken for us, me and you. We're too tight and true. We're what you call girlfriends. We're what we used to call best friends. You were my good friend. You were a risk taker. Now I'm a risk taker too. You are a mover and shaker. And now I'm getting a move on too. I think we're breaking through. We're what you call girlfriends. We're what we used to call best friends. You are my good friend. Little sea crabs. Running everywhere, going sideways, but getting there. Strong shell, but soft inside. You gotta pick them up with love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were a June baby. I was a June baby too. You are a strong lady, and they say I am a strong lady too. If they only knew. You are a risk taker, now I'm a risk taker too. You are a mover and shaker. And now I'm getting a move on to. I think we're breaking through. We're what you call girlfriends. We're what we used to call best friends. You were my good friend. We're what you call girlfriends. We're what we used to call best friends. You were my good friend. 
with what you call girlfriends, with what we used to call best friends. You were my good friend, and everything's looking rosy. Thank you very much. I'm just here for two songs, and it's very, very nice to be here. I've always heard about the Hoot Nanny, and lots of friends of mine play here, but I've never been here. Isn't that shocking? And I only live in Battersea. Um, this second song I'm going to do is about a bad day in Battersea. Most of them are, are pretty good, and um, but this is about one of these kind of urban days when quite a lot of things go wrong that are outside your control, and you just feel like everything you're trying to do, probably lots of writers here feel the same thing you're banging your head against a brick wall trying to make things happen and and it's just and you're just speaking to answer phones and things but lots of good things have happened to me so I need to celebrate that and um as I say I'm a, a literary songwriter and I've been on radio for a lot and women's hour and I've got lots of people who have helped me along the way and I appreciate that a lot anyway this is my from my second album which is called Orange Roses and this is called Worst Things Happen at Sea, and it has a sing-along bit, and I'm very sure that all of you will be really into singing along. There are no words of the sing-along bit. It just goes na, 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 which is me being um, a bit punk. You, you can tell that I really am really punk in my dreams. Anyway, the middle bit, I'll just show you how it goes. You can join in as a kind of on-the-hoof rehearsal. It just goes like this. Na 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 again. Na 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 na. Brilliant! Thank you. Thank you for the joiners in. So it comes in the middle and at the end. And thank you so much for listening. I've got a couple of albums with me. If anyone wants to check it out. Or say hello, and um, I'm going to look forward to listening to the the readings after this. And thank you very much, Zelda, for inviting me. Thanks a lot. My bicycle has been stolen, and this bad day has barely begun. A boy with a spray can scribbled his name on my wall. I feel like I'm running on empty. I've tried everything under the sun. And I'm wasting away on the telephone. Speaking to no one at all. But worse things happen at sea. Worse things happen at sea. Worse things happen at sea than things that happen to me. Now it's you. One, two, three. Na 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 Thank you. Still one more chance at the end. 
I'm bottling up the buses for the time when one just doesn't come. I'm waiting in line for some kind of a sign. The things aren't all coming all done. But worse things happen at sea. They do. Worse things happen at sea. Worse things happen at sea than things that happen to me. That's you. One, two, three. Na 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 Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm Rebecca Holweg. See you again somewhere. Thank you. Rebecca Holweg. Ladies and gentlemen. Well, I get my ducks in a row, I will again mention that books by all the authors are available in yonder corner for sale, and the Brixton Review of Books is also available for free. So check it out. Our next writer, W.C. Ryan, has breathed new life into the mystery novel, setting his novels into huge historical events of the 20th century. Captain Korolev is one of the great character creations of the mystery genre in recent times. He is holding a book launch tomorrow for his latest novel, uh, Ghosts in the Night, set in 1917. This is at the Goldsboro Books near Leicester Square. All of you are welcome to attend. Ladies and gentlemen, Billy Ryan. Uh, hi there. Um, this book isn't actually about Captain Karlov. Um, it's, uh, it's a ghost story. Well, I was asked to write a ghost story, and I ended up writing uh, a bit of a classic country house mystery mixed with a ghost story, mixed with... Um, uh, a little bit of a spy novel as well. And it's set in 1917, uh, just in the worst part of World War I. And there's a little bit of sadness in it, but there's a little bit of humor too. I'm reminded that the last time I was in this pub, uh, I actually tried to break up a fight in uh, the bathroom over a bicycle helmet. Um, and uh, just if you ever are going to get into a fight uh, over something, just make sure it's over something more substantial than a bicycle helmet. Uh, I don't often do readings, uh, but uh, I have an eight-year-old son, and uh, I think he's a pretty tough crowd, so I'm, I'm hoping this is going to go okay. Uh, and I'm also conscious that most of the readings this evening have been 
uh, frankly, excellent and, and quite funny as well. And this book does have funny bits in it, but I managed to have chosen uh, the bit that doesn't have any funny bits in it. Um, so, uh, so that was a bit of a mistake along the lines of trying to break up a fight about a bicycle helmet. So uh, this comes after uh, somebody has been murdered. Attempting to find a man with a knife in a dark, narrow passage, a man who would probably attempt to kill him, was the kind of activity that Donovan regarded as necessary but unpleasant. He could feel the blood pulsing through his body and the charge of adrenaline that came with it. His whole body was almost quivering, but it was not with fear. It was almost pleasurable, this feeling of extreme alertness. He could understand why some men he'd known had come to need this sensation of being on the edge of the abyss. He, on the other hand, was wary of it. The heightened senses and focus were only useful if controlled. If not, it was as dangerous in itself as the situations that gave rise to it. The man was injured, too, he reminded himself. The drops of blood blood, uh, veered from side to side as the trail descended the staircase and then led to yet another hidden door, which the murderer had helpfully left open behind him. This all happens in a secret passageway, in case you were wondering. Um, the erratic trail suggested to him that the man was having trouble walking in a straight line. He still had a knife, though, whichever way you looked at it. Donovan sighed and stepped cautiously from the doorway into the short stretch of corridor. After only a couple of yards, the new passage separated into two narrow branches, low enough that he would have to stoop. Donovan took the right-hand tunnel first, and it led after another turn to what appeared to be a dead end. He looked at the plain wooden panelling in front of him, examining it closely. It seemed unlikely that anyone would make a passage that went nowhere, but at first sight there was nothing that suggested the door he was certain was there in front of him. Donovan remembered, however, how Sims had found the secret door in his bedroom and so ran his hands slowly over the panelling, feeling for a draught until he found one to the left. It must be the edge of the door. He pushed it and found there was a fractional movement, enough to suggest he was on the right track. He looked to the brick walls on either side of the panelling, and there he found a small gap in the brickwork that, when he put his hand to it, revealed a finger hold. He pulled, and the brick came towards him on a hinge, and with the slightest of creaks and a click, the panelling opened, and he found himself standing on the minstrel's gallery above the dining room. The gallery was misnamed, he decided. An entire orchestra could have been fitted on its platform. It was deserted, however. When Donovan stepped out onto its uh, polished oak floorboards, he walked the gallery's length, which terminated with the external wall marking the gable end of the house. There was no sign of a blood trail, which meant the killer had probably turned left instead of right at the fork. He turned to make his way back to the hidden doorway, looking down as he did so at the linen-clothed dining table, glinting with massed silver and crystal, along which the translucent figure of a serving maid floated. At first he thought he must be mistaken, but then she was joined by a stable boy dressed in a leather jerkin and riding boots and a footman. All of them were dressed in the fashion of long before, and then there was the fact that he could see through them, Donovan found that his breath was suddenly in short supply. 
He was quite prepared to accept that Miss Cartwright saw ghosts. She said she did. She was trustworthy. And although she was possessed of an occasionally eccentric sense of humor, she did not appear to be insane. That he should also see spirits took more use getting used to. He reached for a cigarette, conscious that his hands were shaking again, and lit it. More ghosts were now making their way through the dining room, all heading in the same direction as the original three, and that direction was through the wall and into the servants' corridor. It was extraordinary. The ghosts, to Donovan's relief, appeared to have no interest in him whatsoever, and if they were translucent, then surely they could not, he reasoned, be responsible for the attack on Reed, or have been injured by Miss Cartwright's vase, which meant for the moment he should have no interest in them either. He had a killer to catch. I think I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Martin Miller, are you in the house? All right. In his latest book, Super Cute Futures, Martin Miller mixes manga and cyberpunk to bring us a dystopian future that is timely for today, drawing us into a slowly decaying world in which we uncomfortably can see ourselves. Ladies and gentlemen, award-winning Martin Miller. Hello. I think that was a, I think that was a pub, publisher's blurb. Uh, it wasn't mine. I didn't really like it. Now, my new book, Super Cute Futures, which I would describe as cyberpunk, which I am aware it kind of, um, did that perhaps peak and go away in the 80s? Well, anyway. Anyway, um, that's what it is. It concerns Supercute, a gigantic corporation with a lot of, lot of sway and influence over the world. The world's not doing very well, but um, Supercute are. It's run by two women, Mox and Mitsu. When you first meet them, they're obsessed with um, kawaii, cute clothes and such like, and you wouldn't really think that they were much good in a crisis. Mox and Mitsu were not quite ready. Dr. Ishikawa seethed at the delay. It only cost him a few minutes, but he found it objectionable that they should waste any time on their clothes. Aren't you ready yet? It won't take a moment. The tiny printers at their belts were busy producing thin, military-style jackets. There, Mox sounded satisfied. Super cute camouflage, very suitable for going to war. It's four shades of pink, said Dr. Ishikawa. Well, of course, that's what super cute camouflage is. That's not going to hide you from anything. Dr. Ishikawa shook her head, frustrated. When you said you needed to alter your clothes for your mission, I thought you meant something sensible. Well, I think it's quite effective, said Mitsu. And we're already wearing super cute action boots, added Mox. They're pink and blue. And what about your thighs? Do you need to expose a four-centimetre band of flesh at all times? Yes. We wouldn't be super cute if we didn't do that. It's cute and sexually attractive. 
sexually attractive, said Dr. Ishikawa, but your infantile audience? Well, we have older viewers too. We cater to a wide demographic. Really, it's vital for the brand. Dr. Ishikawa shuddered. Just get her the damned couches. But, as it, turned out, as it turns out, Moksan Mitsu, whose bodies are um, enhanced quite a lot with um, various cybernetics inside, as it turns out, they're not so bad when it comes to action and when they get into trouble. Here they are where they've gone to... Re they've gone to... Um, they've gone to recruit someone to help them in their troubles. I really can't imagine Ben Castle and Dr. Ishikawa as a couple. I mean, holding hands, watching romantic movies. Maybe they didn't do any of that. Maybe they just had sex. Moxie's perfect brow wrinkled at the thought. That's not easy to imagine either. There again, we're not very conversant with sex these days. It must be 30 years since we slept with that European commissioner. Mitsu smiled. When we needed approval to build in the nature reserve, we'll sleep with you if you agree to sign Proposition 8724.7, surely one of history's great seduction lines. I've forgotten what the reserve was even for. Protected species, said Mox. Frogs and bats mainly, but you know, fuck them. Neither of them had ever been nature lovers. Super cute abounded with bunnies, kit, super cute abounded with cute bunnies, kittens, bears, many other animals. Mox admits we'd felt much more comfortable around these than they would have with the real things. Castle re-entered the room. Are you ready to go? Mitsu looked at him critically. Is that what you're wearing? It's all I need, said Castle. It's burning hot outside, as always. It's hardly suitable for visiting a lady with whom you were once involved. Show some respect. Castle regarded them with contempt, but he couldn't be bothered arguing. He grabbed an olive green shirt and pulled it on. Better? Well, marginally. A huge explosion on the wall outside sent fragments of concrete and hardened glass into the room. They staggered under the shockwave. Mo Benny's drones had found them, wasted no time in launching an attack. They fled the apartment and headed for the lift. As they ran, they could hear bullets ripping into the outside walls. Another explosion knocked them off their feet. There were screams from nearby apartments. They hurried down the stairs. Chunks of masonry from the ceiling fell around them as they fled. Below, they could hear a woman barking orders. They were trapped on the fourth floor. Castle ran to the window and smashed it. How are your bodies, he said. Really beautiful, replied Mox. Though slender rather than voluptuous, added Mitsu. We prefer that. Castle glared at them with loathing, not appreciating a levity at this time. I meant, how are your frames? Newly enhanced. Good, follow me. With that, Castle leapt from the building. Mox and Mitsu did the same. The fall from four stories up was jarring, but not harmful. Their enhanced bone structure and musculature absorbing the shock. They ran past the next tower block, heading for the cover of the street outside them. Ms. Lazuda could be heard shouting at her troops, urging them to find their quarry. 
Castle led them through the space between a row of dilapidated brick garages and the perimeter wall of the estate. For a moment, they hoped they'd slipped off unnoticed, but a tiny alarm in Castle wrist warned them that someone was approaching. Appearing quite suddenly, he fired at them. Castle fired back. Distracted for a second, Mox and Mitsu failed to spot a second assailant on their flank and were alerted to his presence only when a burst of machine gun fire slammed into them. The shielding protected them. They dropped behind the car for cover. Mox produced her screen and spoke a command, sending out an emergency scan. Weakness hacks him. Her scan having revealed an exploitable defect. Mox and Mitsu immediately entered and attacked. They overloaded it, causing a bolt of energy to flicker from his visor back into his brain. They emerged back into reality. At the end of the street was an underground station, no longer in use. They sprinted down the stairs. In front of the locked doorway stood a cute and cheerful puppy in a blue jacket. No entry, radiation, no entry, radiation, it said, repeating the warning as they hurried past. Mitsu ran her hand over the grey metal door. It beeped several times as she picked each of the electronic locks. The door opened smoothly and they hurried inside. London Transport would never have started using cute holograms for public relations if it wasn't for us, said Mox. I know, said Mitsu. We really changed society. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Our next writer invites us to go time-traveling, revisiting dark stories in the past that we aren't unable to put behind us. Her novels explore the impact of crime and injustice, and her second novel, The Story Keeper, is described as a dark, chilling, historical thriller, and it was just published last summer. Ladies and gentlemen, Anna Matsola. Hi, everyone. The last time, or actually the first time I read at um, Brixton Book Jam was in 2014 when I won the Brixton Book Jam debut novel competition. Woo! Yeah, it's been downhill ever since then. No, it kind of hasn't. Um, but that was, that was very helpful to me in getting my first novel published, The Unseeing, which is um, based on a real murder in Camberwell in 1837. That came out in 2016. My second novel, The Story Keeper, um, came out in July, and again, it's inspired by a real crime from London, this time the West Ham Vanishings, which is where a series of young girls started going missing from the East End of London. Um, And one of them, Eliza Carter, briefly reappeared and was said to have said that um, she had been taken by the fairies, which I thought was pretty weird. But rather than keep with the real story, as I did with my first novel, I've moved it to the Isle of Skye, and it's become the story of a folklorist's assistant called Audrey. 
and she's come over from London and is tasked with collecting fairy tales and folklore from the local crofters. But this is 1857. It's in the wake of the Highland Clearances. It's a community that's been riven by fear and poverty. Um, so the scene I'm going to read you is the first time that Audrey tries to collect folklore from one of the local families. Um, see how you think she does. Also, by the way, no jokes in this one either. My editor took them out. It's a true story. <clears throat> Audrey ducked beneath the lintel of the low doorway. The air inside was thick with peat smoke that stung her eyes and caught, sour, at the back of her throat. A red glow came from her fire in the centre of the house, which seemed at first to comprise just one room, the floor of beaten earth. Rusty tools lined the walls, and next to the door stood a heap of peats. A lean-faced man sat on a low stool in the corner of the room, twisting twigs of heather into a rope. Mr. Steele? Audrey asked. The man did not get up, but nodded at her. Felche, welcome. The woman moved over to a fire where a large pot hung from a thick iron chain in the centre of the ceiling and began to poke at the peats with a pair of tongs. As she took in her surroundings, Audrey explained who she was and why she was there. Through a rough doorway, she saw a second room, a byre, from which the gentle eyes of a cow looked out. Behind the smoke and the dung, there was another smell too, of damp, and she noticed that the separating wall was wet. I'm trying to find those who know the folk tale, she explained. The man continued to twist the rope. The woman poked at the peats. And I understand uh, that you know some of the stories from these parts. Who was it who was telling you that? The woman asked. With her tongs, she broke the kindling peat to a flame. Audrey hesitated. Miss Buchanan was informed, I don't know who by, that you would be good people to speak to for the stories. Mr. and Mrs. Steele exchanged a look. No, the woman said firmly. We don't know any stories. Audrey coughed. There were no windows in the place. The only light came from the open door and a small hole in the roof through which some of the peat smoke escaped. In the corner of the room was a box bed with a wooden frame and sheeting covering. Why then would she think that you did? The woman did not look at her. She took a horn spoon from a rude dresser standing against the wall and used it to stir something in the pot. The Buchanans may be thinking they know everything around here, but they don't. For a moment, Audrey considered apologising for her, her mistake, bidding the couple farewell and leaving the stinking, smoke-choked house. But how would she explain her failure? And more than that, she could sense that there was something there. They were lying. Have you always lived on Sky? she persisted. Always, the man said, and we'll never be leaving, not until they drag us out onto the boats. Our sons have gone, but we're not giving up our home. You can tell that to the Buchanans. The woman was shaking her head at him. I'm not here to report on you. That's not what... Audrey searched for the right words. I first came to Skye as a young child, she said at last. The woman looked up. Oh, indeed. Yes, with my mother. We came every spring. She paused. The Steels were watching her, and she knew she had to explain. That's part of the reason I came here. I wanted to find out why she loved the place so much, why she kept coming back. She thought she understood it in part. As a young woman, her mother had obtained work here at the kelp-making in the days before the industry died. She'd often spoken of the girls she'd known then, of the dancing at the Cayleys and the stories they'd told. But why seek this place out again and again? It was grand, yes. It was a desolate sort of grandeur. Audrey's first impression of the island was of somewhere unwelcoming, traumatised, strange. She gathered some of the old stories and songs herself, she said. 
She had a gift, I think. People trusted her. Nothing. So I wanted to understand the stories, you see. Not just for Miss Buchanan, but for myself. The man regarded her carefully. We used to be knowing the stories, he said, but we no longer remember them. I see. A hen squawked at the floor by Audrey's feet, pecking something from the earthen floor. I know some people think they are harmful, the old stories. It's not the old stories you need to be worrying about, the woman said. It's the new ones. The new ones? The man shook his head as if to silence his wife. What are the new stories? There are no stories. My wife doesn't know what she says. If you'd prefer, I can avoid mentioning your names. I've no wish to cause you trouble. Ah, but there will be trouble. Trouble from whom? Them that don't want the stories told. Who, the Kirk? The little people, the woman said quietly. They punish, the man said. They take. What do they take? They take what they want and they leave the husk, just like the landowners. Audrey heard something drop. She looked up to see another hen perched in the blackened rafter, stretching its wings. The little people. Were they talking about fairies? Spirits who exacted vengeance on those who told their tales? She regarded the woman's lined, peat-streaked face, her reddened eyes. What do you mean by new stories? The woman hesitated. I'm sorry, miss, but we can't help you. When Audrey did not move, the man stood up before her. You see our lives. They're hard enough as it is. We wish you well, miss, but there's nothing for you here. Thank you. Thanks very much. Anna Matsola, ladies and gentlemen. Marianne Kavanagh's fourth novel, Disturbance, to be published in the new year, continues an exploration of different genres, always with characters that get under your skin and stay there. Disturbance is a psychological drama about a woman driven over the edge by rejection and betrayal. Ladies and gentlemen, Marianne Kavanagh. Thank you. Lovely to see you all. Thank you for coming. I'm very nervous, so I'll try and take a deep breath. Um, this is Disturbance. It's published next March, and this is my very first reading from it, so I hope you like it. <laughs> um, thank you. Um, the, the book is the, a story about um, a woman called Sarah. She's a lonely, middle-aged woman who lives with her bad-tempered husband and two teenage sons in the biggest house in the village. She's very isolated. And then she meets Katie, who's an 18-year-old student who moves into uh, a house nearby, and Katie comes to walk Sarah's dog. And so the two women start an unlikely friendship, um, and the bit I'm going to read you now is just when Katie has started opening up to Sarah and telling Sarah about the boyfriend who broke her heart. For Katie, the end was brutal. One Friday night in the goat, when the pub was packed with after-work drinkers, Danny said it was over. 
There had been no preamble, no warning. It was such a shock, she started crying. He pushed back his chair, jogging the table so that beer slopped over the edge of his pint glass, and his voice was angry, as if she'd accused him of something he hadn't done. I never said I loved you. When she got back, she realized the house had been cleared of everything that belonged to him. He'd packed up before he'd even got to the pub, before he'd even told her it was finished. A few days later, the spare key arrived through the letterbox like an afterthought. Katie's voice was thick with tears. Later, because she'd been concentrating so hard, Sarah almost felt that she'd been there in the goat herself the night that Danny said he was leaving. She could smell the old carpet, the frying oil, the sugary yeast of the beer. She could see Danny in front of her, loud with self-justification. At the end of the afternoon, when Katie finally put on her coat and scarf and they stood in the great hall, the shadows wide on the white walls, Sarah said, Can I give you a key? Then you can let yourself in whenever you like, whether I'm here or not. Katie's eyes were solemn. I'll keep it very safe. I know you will. Over the next few days, Katie continued to tell Sarah about Danny. The stories tumbled out like gas exploding from a bottle. Every so often she'd stop and look up, hot with humiliation, apologizing for the constant stream of words. Sarah said, you need to talk, but I'm wasting your time. Sarah shook her head. Everything about Danny was perfect. His light blue eyes, his long fingers. He had a way of creating space that belonged only to them, leaning in close to tell her secrets that no one else could hear. She never had to share him with other people. Sometimes on Saturdays they went into town to one of the cafes that served all-day breakfasts because Danny was fond of a fry-up. But he always chose the one behind the car park so they didn't have to talk to anyone they knew. Danny usually ordered everything on the menu, including baked beans and fried bread, but not the mushrooms because he said they were slimy, and decorated everything with tomato ketchup. He always left the white around the fried egg, though, because he said it turned his stomach. He laughed at her for getting into debt so that she could study for a degree. That's just playing someone else's game. Use your brains. Work it out for yourself. Sex had been urgent, immediate, as if they were running out of time. They didn't always make it upstairs, slid from the sofa to the floor in front of the small electric fire that smelled of burning plastic. They did it in the woods once, on the way back from the pub. The grass was wet and the air was rank and rotten. The next morning she had a rash all the way up her legs from her ankles to her groin. In the beginning, she'd worried all the time that he might leave, but then his toothbrush appeared in the plastic cup on the toilet system and his private stash of beer in the fridge. And he hung up all his work clothes on a black iron rail in the spare bedroom, his shoes in shiny pairs underneath. He said to everyone in the goat that he was her lodger. I'm renting a room at Katie's. Except that he never paid her a penny. And the room was just for his shirts. He was in sales, Katie said, working on commission. He didn't have to sell the windows, just get people to agree to someone coming round to give them a free quotation. He often got invited in for a chat, especially by the elderly ladies living alone. He could turn on the charm. They wanted to fatten him up, 
cake, biscuits, lots of sugar in his tea. He used to say, they love me, can't get enough of me. One afternoon, they went to see his nan. She'd smoked for so many years that the skin on her face had dried out like the apple you'd forgotten at the bottom of a bowl. Every so often, she'd turn away from the telly and squint at Katie through the yellow fog and fire questions straight out like a policeman. How old are you? Where did you go to school? What job do you do? Later, Katie said to Danny, I don't think she likes me. Danny said, she doesn't. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, the night is young, and that means it's time to recharge your glasses for the 15-minute intermission before set three. Can you dig it? We'll be right back. 